Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 348th edition of Talk to Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Medical Association. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the president and the founder of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about the enigma of sepsis. Who prevails when it comes to defining sepsis, the providers or the payers? Yes, it's a problem. Often the criteria payers choose are whichever ones the providers didn't. <laughs> Indeed. You know, it seems like those who control the money also control the reimbursement. So we've asked Roland Dale, who handles denial prevention at Hardin Medical Center, to share how he approaches sepsis denials. Clinicians need to understand sepsis to diagnose and document it right. Sometimes the payers have grounds for denial. Mm, I want to hear about that. Also, there's something that's uh, very much of interest today. It's getting a lot of attention, and that is the recently released 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Dr. Raj Mahajan is standing by to report that developing story. Rhonda Taller returns with her Dateline Washington report. Looking forward to that as well. And later in the broadcast, you're going to comment on the Global Leadership Initiative on malnutrition. We have my news report during this broadcast, and we'll begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on how to simplify the complexities of coding diabetes. It features Gloria Ann Bryant, and it's Wednesday, November 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck, and thanks for uh, having me on the show. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, changes to the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and before people get really excited and think that they don't have to document uh, a bunch of things in terms of coding. I wanted to, one, give a, a very brief thought of what is required under the current coding guidelines, and that is uh, for codes 99213 through 214 is a detailed history, a complex physical exam, and complex decision-making. Now, one of the legs of uh, HPC code 99214 is a detailed exam that requires that the exam meet 12 specific bullets for the examination. So while the, the changes uh, allow uh, a shift, to document things through medical, through, com, through using medical decision making or time, uh, that doesn't mean that that all the requirements in the doctors go away. Um, complex decision making has to include at least two of the following, and one is a review of laboratory or other test results, uh, multiple management options for diagnoses are made, or moderate risk of mortality or complications. So even though we can see that this is that there are benefits to this and certain reductions, I think specifically that some of the things that that are going to be uh, reduced as as burdens is the requirement for putting down the chief complaint. Uh, so there are certain things that that are going to be allowed, but on the other hand, there's going to be requirements that that have still have to be met. I think that the biggest struggle that folks are going to to have is documenting time through the use of time. So different levels of ENM codes can be documented instead of using any of the uh, other uh, uh, issues is using the time, the actual face time with the patient. And one of the things that I would really uh, 
uh, council physicians on, and I know that CMS is going to be looking at is, um, there are only 24 hours in a day. And I have had a number of physicians that have tried to use uh, time as, in terms of documentation, and they've come up on uh, the uh, ZPIC or Medicare radar because when Medicare actually looked at the amount of time that, that they spent on E&M codes, they found that they were spending more than 24 hours a day providing services. So I would uh, counsel physicians that we need to look at this and 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 a deeper and a deeper dive. But also when you're looking at FaceTime as a physician to make sure that you're not spending more than 24 hours a day working. And um, we're going to be looking at that uh, in, in more detail in later in later presentations. But with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's November the 13th, 2018, and you're listening to the 348th edition of Talked In Tuesday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. Now is the time for Dateline Washington, featuring Dr. Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Teller. Good morning, Rhonda. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What should we know? I'll start by saying that elections do matter. Healthcare was definitely on the ballot in the past midterm election, and it appears that repeal, full repeal of the Affordable Care Act is something that will not be pursued come January. For the Democrats, there were a number of things on their health care agenda, including drug pricing, which could be an area of collaboration with the administration. Many of your listeners may have heard Secretary of Health and Human Services Azar spoken numerous times very publicly discussing the administration's proposals in the blueprint for drug pricing that came out in May. Some items have already been done through uh, administrative Actions, others are regulations, such as a proposed rule on list prices for direct-to-consumer drugs over a certain price point that is currently in the comment phase. Uh, the Democrats could also look at Part Medicare Part D and government negotiation of drug reimbursement. Um, they may even investigate the pharmaceutical industry um, regarding some price increases. Uh, pre-existing conditions, um, there is a lawsuit currently, I believe backed by 20 Republican attorney generals about pre-existing uh, conditions. However, that will certainly be top of mind to keep intact for the Democrats. Obviously, a major crisis in this country, opioids, Um, and while some work was done in the BBA last year, there may be room for some additional work there. Um, Another area we always hear a lot about is Medicare for all, but it means different things. To some, it means single payers. To some, it means stopgap for uninsured. I'm sure we will hear more about Medicare for all. And then Medicaid expansion. 
um, Nebraska, Idaho, Utah voted to expand. However, Montana rejected a proposal to continue funding. I think we'll want to watch some states where Democratic governors are coming in to see that have not expanded Medicaid to see if, in fact, there will be an expansion. The other thing I want to mention is that, um, and it was discussed briefly earlier, that there were some final rules that recently dropped. The physician fee schedule with a lot of changes in there regarding, um, and some of them postponed regarding E&M coding. Um, And that physician fee schedule is also the rule where the quality payment program, uh, or MACRA as some know know it as, um, those final rules were incorporated into that that regulation um, with some changes to the merit-based incentive payment system program. Um, And as well, there were some finalizations for uh, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, ACO. There was also the hospital outpatient rule. Um, Another thing I'll mention is that um, CMS sent a letter out to clinicians I believe it was last week, on some of the things they are doing to eliminate administrative burden, um, some of the changes they have made already. So um, it will be interesting to see what happens come January. We don't want to forget that we're coming back to a lame duck session. And also, I believe that uh, the government funding runs out in December. There was a stopgap bill that was proposed uh, earlier this year so that the government did not shut down um, prior to the midterm. So with that, I'll stop. That's quite a bit of um, detail, and I'll turn it back to you, Erica. That certainly was a lot of detail. Thank you, Rhonda. That was Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Toller. Rhonda is a member of the HIMSS Professional Development Committee. Our Tuesday focus today is on the recently released final rules for the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and the Quality Payment Program. Here now to report on both final rules is Dr. Raj Mahajan. Good morning, Doctor. Thank you, Chuck and Erica. Good morning, everybody. As you all know, on November 1st um, this year, uh, CMS released the final rule of um, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, or MPFS, as we all call it lovingly. Um, uh, this document actually was a 2,378-page final rule um, that came out in Federal Register, and it really marked the end of a tumultuous few months in our medical community. And um, since this rule um, proposal was released early a few months ago, so the um, Secretary Azar um, said that, and I quote. Uh, the historic reform uh, CMS finalized today moved us closer to healthcare system that delivers a better care for Americans at lower cost. Um, and, and the CMS administrator, Seema Morma, who truly is the driving force behind this, this final rule, um, has been working on several initiatives, uh, including um, pay, uh, patients over paperwork um, and, and According to her, the rule will address uh, onerous documentation requirements, allowing physicians to spend more time with their patients, and also will focus on physician burnout, which has been a major issue, including reports of higher suicide rates within physicians. So um, the few things that I do want to mention, if you um, had read my post uh, immediately following the release back in August, I had voiced the concerns 
um, that having a single code for follow-up visits, and uh, earlier our speaker had mentioned that levels two through four uh, would be collapsed, and um, it was proposed that starting January 1st of 2019, um, they remove uh, the codes from level two to four and make it uh, to level one. So uh, I'm a geriatrician, and similarly, people who have cognitive codes they um, the impact according to initial AMA studies was up to 30% less revenue um, because of uh, the way things were uh, proposed. So the good news is um, the collapsing of the codes has been has been um, delayed and postponed till 2021. Uh, but they did do several things to. Um, lift the redundant requirements for attending physician to uh, read write the information. For example, if the medical assistant or a medical resident or a nurse has taken the vital signs or, or entered um, review systems or other chief complaints, uh, we had requirement for the attending physician uh, to rewrite in the note to be able to bill for those services, but no longer that is required starting now. Uh, the conversion factor, um, which is uh, a payment uh, foundation, is now $36.04, and this is up from $35.99. And one of the other things that's very exciting is um, there was um, two new codes finalized um, that are um, used using communication technology-based services, where uh, a store and forward messages can be uh, used and, and also interprofessional consultation can be used to build. Um, and then also, as earlier speakers mentioned, the quality payment program um, has been also updated in this rule. Um, majority of that was around, around the advanced care information, also known as meaningful use. That has been changed over to promoting interoperability. Uh, within the MIPS system, one of the um, uh, one of the foundations of that, and um, there's going to be a lot of interoperability used to um, to get the payment incentives for the physicians. And also, there's several new providers, including physical therapists, etc., added to uh, to, uh, to providers um, in the new um, ACO slash MACRA MIPS system. Thanks, Raj. That was Dr. D. Raj Majan. Dr. Majan is president and CEO of Chicago Internal Medicine Practice and Research, and he also leads its affiliated group of companies. Our lead story this morning comes from an email exchange between our next guest, Roland Dale, and Dr. Edward Hugh. And essentially, the conversation was, who decides on the definition of sepsis? Providers who tend to use sepsis 3 or payers at CMS who use sepsis 2. Now, joining us now is the aforementioned Roland Dale. Roland handles denial prevention at Hardin Medical Center in Savannah, Tennessee. And good morning, Roland. Welcome to the broadcast. And we understand that sometimes when reviewing claims, you'll actually side with the payers. So why and under what circumstances will you be doing that, Roland? Well, sometimes there's nothing else I can do based upon the clinical criteria that... uh, or the clinical documentation that we have. Let me confirm up front for you, though, that sepsis denials for me have been very challenging, and I have no silver bullet, love potion, or gold dust that could make it any less challenging. 
And let me say, too, that denial prevention uh, at Hardin Medical Center is part of our overall compliance program. And uh, focus, uh, my focus is on clinical documentation that clearly indicates in detail uh, the reason for the admission and procedures it performed and all clinical indicators used by the physician to determine um, the principal diagnosis and more particularly here, sepsis. Um, the clinical documentation of sepsis requires greater detail and effort to avoid a denial. At least that's our experience. The process that we use here to challenge all denials, and sepsis is no, is no exclusion, is, uh, is as follows. Uh, when we receive the denial letter, we carefully review that letter to determine um, the rationale for the denial. In other words, what was the auditor seeing or reporting that would result in the denial? We inform case management and they are consulted to evaluate the merits of the denial and begin to develop uh, an appeal strategy. The coding staff reviews the entire medical record and to ensure that the codes are assigned to the client, that the codes that were assigned to the claim are complete, accurate, and correctly sequenced. Our provider then uh, is sent a copy of the denial letter with a request to provide any additional clinical information that may uh, relate to the denial. Patient accounting is informed simply to let them know that there is a pending denial. Case management, coding, and the providers meet to determine the efficacy of an appeal. A physician advisor is included when uh, in need. If the denial is considered unwarranted, uh, then an appeal is initiated and sent to the outside uh, to an outside contractor to develop um, a, a strategy for the appeal or to implement that. And the process then varies uh, in terms of the appeal depending upon the uh, the payer involved. At this time, uh, in at Harden, we have we have. Um, seven uh, a cases at the ALJ level, and, that's, and I don't know that they're all um, sepsis, but at any rate, um, uh, three of those are, are have been uh, have been resolved, but we haven't gotten the results, and four of them are still pending. The foundation for our denial prevention program is clinical documentation, and that's particularly true of sepsis. Um, case manage, we have recommended the case management implement sepsis monitoring uh, as soon uh, as a sepsis uh, client, uh, diagnosis is documented. Um, to begin that process, though, uh, we I felt that we have to have a um, clinical diagnosis, uh, an standard clinical diagnosis. We have. Um, Payers saying one thing, auditors saying something. I'm not sure that our um, that our physicians understand that. So we developed a standard clinical diagnosis. We from that diagnosis we identified criteria that would support that diagnosis. And once that um, criteria is approved, then uh, we we can begin to code uh, for accurate coding and clinical um, uh, validation. Uh, there's, some, there's been a decided increase in the number of sepsis denials, and I noticed that in United, five of our denials right now are from United Healthcare, and they're utilizing uh, the sepsis-3 criteria right now, so I don't know how that works with other people. We have one other, di- uh, one other 
uh, denial from Cigna and um, one from Amerigroup. There seems to be no universally accepted uh, clinical criteria for sepsis. And uh, so uh, when I saw the I-10 monitor uh, article on understanding sepsis, I sent it to our URA um, Utilization Management, uh, com- uh, Case Management Committee, and they were discussing what to do with sepsis. Um, the the result was not as uh, positive as I wanted. They They decided not to accepted uh, or de- adopt a definition, and they decided not to uh, indicate the criteria used. And part of it is that they just don't know what to do with it. So um, that le- and so I wrote to Dr. Hugh to tell him that I, I told him that we need that we do get denials, and I've reviewed at least five of the denials I have on my desk now, and none of them seem to meet the sepsis three di- uh, criteria, and all of them are from United Healthcare, so that um, so I, <laughs> we had an exchange because I'm quite concerned that without clinical criteria, we don't know what to code, and we're not we're not and the clinical tri- criteria has to support the validation of the diagnosis. So we're in a catch twenty two, and it all comes back to complete, accurate, and timely clinical documentation in the record. Thanks, Roland. That was Roland Dale. Roland handles denial prevention at Hardin Medical Center in Savannah, Tennessee. Now's the time for a very popular segment called Talk Back, featuring our own Dr. Erica Reamer. And this morning, Dr. Reamer is commenting on the Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition. So once again, here's Dr. Reamer. Malnutrition is a terrible problem worldwide, even more so in third world countries than here. Historically, undernutrition was due to starvation and famine, born of poverty, war, and nature. But malnutrition due to disease and inflammation is a major contributor now, especially in developed countries. In our sphere, a fundamental lack of consensus on diagnostic criteria, similar to what we were just discussing in sepsis, has opened the door for denials. In January 2016, the Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition, or GLIM, convened with the intent to establish global consensus criteria so that prevalence, interventions, and outcomes can be compared worldwide. The core leadership committee included the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN, as a representative of the United States. I'm going to give you a quick summarization with the disclaimer that although the criteria are newly released, they are not universally adopted yet. The committee settled on a two-step model for risk screening by use of any validated screening tool, including our ASPEN criteria, which many of your organizations utilize, followed by a secondary diagnosis assessment set forth in the article. There are three phenotypic criteria. Phenotype is the visible character of an organism, the way genes or genotype and the environment combine to express physical characteristics. All existing malnutrition tools recognize non-volitional weight loss as being an indicator and as such constitutes the first phenotypic criterion. This refers to unintentional loss of weight and the article notes that many patients may have lost their weight prior to presentation to healthcare. There was significant variation in the use of low BMI as a criterion for malnutrition. Having obesity coincident with malnutrition is a first-world problem. 
Low BMI is more typical in other regions of the world. The last phenotypic criterion is reduced muscle mass, also known as sarcopenia. There was no consensus as how to best measure and judge diminished muscle mass, but as reduced muscle function generally accompanies loss of muscle mass, decreased hand grip strength can be used as a proxy. The next step was determining etiology. The two categories identified were decreased nutrition and disease burden slash inflammation. Reduced food intake from decreased appetite, depression, medication side effects or availability, and malabsorption or decreased assimilation from processes such as short bowel syndrome, bariatric surgery, and persistent vomiting constitute the first etiologic criterion. The alternative etiologic criterion comprises severe, chronic, or frequently recurrent inflammation such as major infections, burns, trauma, and chronic diseases such as heart failure, COPD, CKD, liver disease, and cancer. This is subdivided into chronic disease with and without inflammation, acute disease or injury with severe inflammation, and starvation associated with socioeconomic or environmental factors. To diagnose malnutrition, there needs to be at least one phenotypic criterion and one etiologic criterion. Glim goes on to give us severity grading criteria. Only moderate and severe are recognized, which is likely to cause us problems if providers diagnose mild malnutrition. The article notes that cachexia, wasting disease due to chronic disease such as AIDS or cancer, fits into the category of malnutrition related to chronic disease with inflammation, but there are some distinctive features. It says the Glim criteria are to be applied in parallel. Epidemiologically, if one were to code R64 for cachexia with the appropriate malnutrition code, you could identify these cases. The excludes one are for abnormal weight loss and nutritional marasmus. Glim plans to validate the criteria and reevaluate every three to five years. They hope to have the World Health Organization embrace them and incorporate them into ICD-11. I'm going to guess that we are going to see organizations and societies adopt these criteria and our dietitians are going to transition. Let's hope the third-party payers and auditors move with us. Chuck, that's my synopsis of Glim. I rec- uh, recommend strongly that everyone read the entire source article. Back to you. Uh, Erica, we were uh, uh, very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Roland Dale on our program just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, you had some comments you would like to make about what he was saying about his situation. Well, what I would like to say is the best denial prevention is diagnosing sepsis appropriately and then documenting it well. And my, my tip for today, because we're very short on time, is I suggest that your doctors start doing sepsis, due to, and then documenting whatever the localized infection is that they think is causing the sepsis, and then as evidenced by and giving the organ dysfunction. So what happens is we need to make sure that they're documenting sepsis with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction, but the, a, a good way to show your evidence and have anybody reading it know that this patient really does have sepsis, so that they either don't give you a denial or you can fight it, is linking the sepsis with the infection and the organ dysfunction. So sepsis due to the infection as evidenced by acute hypoxic respiratory failure and uh, sepsis-related uh, encephalopathy. That's my tip for today. 
Excellent tip. Thank you very much, Erica. That's going to be a wrap for us. This is our 348th edition of Talk Down Tuesday. And Erica and I want to thank our panelists today, Dr. Raj Mahajan, Tim Powell, Rhonda Teller, and our special guest, Roland Dale from Heart Medical Center in Savannah, Tennessee. Thanks, Roland, for being on our program. And before we go, a reminder, there's not going to be a Talk Down Tuesday next Tuesday, November the 20th. That's because it's the run-up to the long Thanksgiving Day weekend. So we wish you all a wonderful Thanksgiving. Listen to Talk Down Tuesday on demand anytime, anywhere, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. So I hope you're going to be with us on Tuesday, November the 27th, for another live edition of Talk Down Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk Down Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Talk Down Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.